podcast may cause severe side effects, including but not limited to severe spoiler exposure, millennial opinion insertion, and the perpetual ignorance of common sense. This narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Hello, and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. Be sure to stick around at the end for our feature, Itch to Pitch, and find out how you can get involved as a part of our podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. Today we'll be talking about the most talked about and most streamed television show ever in existence. That would be The Mandalorian, directed by Jon Favreau. Good evening, Daniel. Good evening, doing? James. Doing well, and I am excited to talk about this show. This has been... I thought you might be. I thought you might be. This, <laughs> seems, this seems right up your alley. This seems like your, your, uh, your flavor of television. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think uh, it'll be very fun to talk about, in my opinion, a good piece of Star Wars uh, after Disney bought Lucasfilm. So, uh, but before we get into that, I'm wondering if you'd like to do, as always, our... Uh, number reveal what do we rate um this series as a whole this season one all we've got so far yeah okay out of 10 yes out of 10 ready okay five five four four three three two, two one one eight point five ooh cool Sweet. so talk to me about why eight well i thought it was a great show thought it was a lot of fun i was emotionally invested uh, as soon as the first episode basically ends, mm-hmm. um, I was interested before, but, um, I think the main thing that had me hesitating from the beginning was, is this just going to be a cold callous guy going around doing cold callous things, which is cool right. in and of itself, but not something I can emotionally connect with. But then he shows mercy to this small creature and, yeah. uh, I'm just emotionally invested automatically it's just like well this has everything that i want now i guess <laughs> i'm gonna watch this and see it through to the end so yeah all in all i would say quality storytelling uh i like shows that take it easier with pacing uh mm-hmm. i think this was not super quick uh not too fast not one action sequence to another the show right. takes it time takes its time and is confident in taking time and yeah. i think that's one of the biggest things that i appreciate about it now, uh, why'd you give it an eight and a half instead of sure uh, ten or an eight? I love how approachable this show is, especially when comparing it to our last review about Rise of Skywalker. Our biggest issue with that movie was how crowded everything was. There were so many characters that demanded our attention, so many plot lines, so many conflicts. And The Mandalorian is like the exact opposite on the spectrum. It's true. Like, I would literally put The Mandalorian... At one end of a spectrum, and then the Rise of Skywalker at another. I think that the Rise of Skywalker is the most crowded and claustrophobic Star Wars movie of all time. And I think The Mandalorian is the most simple and straightforward Star Wars media of all time. 
the Mandalorian, it, it's such an approachable show that even if you're not a huge Star Wars nerd, you will still, there's an opportunity for you here to get into the series, to be invested in the characters and the plot line. And like what you were talking about, this, this awesome kick-butt bounty hunter that kind of discovers that he has a heart of gold when yeah. he meets as what people call Baby Yoda. Um, it's really cool, and it's really sweet. <laughs> and oh it's my so- gosh, how it all sort of starts to make sense, you know, near the last two episodes. Um, yeah. Why he does what he does is just so interesting, and it, um, it still, even then, whenever you have answers, you still want to know more, and there are more questions uh, that will hopefully be answered in the next season. Yeah, yeah. I think that was great. Um, I love how this guy um, is a very, I don't know, this this may be strange to like, but I love how he's such a loyal Mandalorian. He actually likes the culture and people that kind of raised him up. Um, He follows their code, and I kind of thought there would be some edginess to that, like, I was forced into this life, or, you know, I... I don't like the fact that I can never take off my helmet. It's like, no, he's he has deep respect and appreciation for uh, how they saved his life. And it's implied, though I don't think it's ever said, it's implied that he had a choice. He could have trained with the Mandalorians, or he could have not. Right. Um, but they gave him a purpose in life. They gave him a place. They raised him up. And even though they're tough on him sometimes, they, they don't disrespect him. They... Even though he's not a native Mandalorian, he didn't grow right. up on their home planet. He's a foundling. Yeah, he. They still treat him as one of them, and I think that's so cool. I love that their culture reflects honor and just all of this. Yeah, and that reflects in the relationship that he has with, um, with the child. It's uh, yeah, it's such an adoptive attitude. Um, yeah. So unflinchingly accepting and protective yeah. of this new thing. Yeah. And even though his actions lead to the hidden sect of Mandalorians kind of blowing their own cover to save him, yeah, they do this because they trust in his judgment. And his judgment is ultimately this child should not be enslaved or whatever it is that they have plans for. This child needs to be free, and I, I'm just following my instincts at this point. Mm-hmm. And I love how they just support him in that. Even the bigger um, uh, Mandalorian, I believe he's called Paz Vizsla, uh, John Favreau actually voices him. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, it is. Little creator cameo. But, um, you, you, like, even that guy, the guy he brawls with briefly, um, he ends up supporting him. He's like, this is the way. It's like, okay. <laughs> it, I just think that camaraderie is really cool. Uh, yeah. And it's not often in movies nowadays where you get such a strong sense of community. Um, like we said, the most recent trilogy of star wars really lacked that we lacked liking the characters and we failed to see how it was all cohesive um all that just to say though there is a reason why the show is not a 10 out of 10 um, okay i think this might be one of my favorite shows i've seen thus far in my life uh wow. it's not I, i'm not saying it will stay that way forever but i i can't help but love how this show takes such a big world and just focuses on so many specific things and doesn't lose that focus yeah. Um, I gotta say though, episode five, <laughs> the gunslinger, is um, I I think definitely the worst episode of the season. Um, Remind Jake, me and the audience what episode five is about. Of course, uh, it's when he goes to Mos Eisley. Uh, there's a mechanic that kind of takes on Baby Yoda, 
and he helps this rookie bounty hunter who double crosses him. Okay. And that's the that's the episode. Yeah. Uh, Jake Cannavale, I think, uh, he plays this rookie bounty hunter called Toro Calican, and yeah. um, his acting is awful. <laughs> it's just yeah. I and I think it's a mixture of both bad writing, bad acting, and just not a good character. Because uh, he's like, yeah, I'm the you know, like his intro even when he's like lounged up against the booth in the cantina. Like Han Solo is. Yeah, exactly. You know, sort of a and reference. And he's so clearly a cookie-cutter shadow of Han Solo. But then, like, um, he shows the Mandalorian the tracking fob that he has, and then, when they're about to leave, he takes the tracking fob and smashes it. And I don't understand why, because that, that doesn't help you in any way. But he smashes it, and he's like, guess you're stuck with me now. It's like, well, the Mandalorian's trying to help you. Why are you, you know? And then when he double crosses the Mandalorian, I wasn't surprised, and I don't feel I was the only one. I was hmm. like, yeah, this guy was sketchy to begin with. But I digress. I, I think episode five had a lot of problems with it. It was Dave Filoni's first time directing something in live action, and Dave Filoni has, is the creator and mind behind the Clone Wars series and the Rebels series. Um, but I just don't think he has the chops for it. Uh, there was a lot of rough things, especially acting-wise with the characters and how things were set up. But even so, all that just to say, uh, I did find that this series had a uh, surprisingly very consistent level of quality, despite a lot of flaws in a few of the episodes. Um, Taika Watiti comes in at the very end to direct the season finale. He does a great job. One of my favorite scenes in The Mandalorian is with the two scout troopers when they're just kind of waiting to deliver <laughs> the child to yeah. Moff Gideon. It was, like, such a, it was such a great um, shift of tone. Yeah. Um, something, this is going to make me sound old and perhaps pretentious, yeah. but something that I will always remember in literature is directly after Romeo and Juliet kill themselves in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Surprise, spoilers, they both <laughs> kill themselves. It's quickly followed by a comedic scene between a bunch of hand servants arguing with each other. Um, from, I can't remember if it's the house that Romeo was born in or the house I that Juliet's born I in. I barely remember the book. But either way, um, yeah, Shakespeare. There's just something there that a lot of people need to take notes from. And I think this, that part of that episode, the beginning of the last episode, takes good notes from you need a good comedic break after a huge traumatic loss to keep yeah. things moving. Because that scene happens right after Kuil is, is murdered in the sand. And that was just so crushing to so me. So crushing. And, and it was just like, I can't move on. And then this comedic <laughs> scene happens, and I'm like, okay, we're back in it. We can do this. And I think it was such a good decision. And I don't know who to credit for this, whether it was Taika who directed uh, the actors in the show, or perhaps more so John Favreau, who is the creator and showrunner of this series. Um, but I think it was such a smart decision to open up with that because you have yeah. such a heavy end of a, of an episode. And, um, I honestly, I think if I would have watched the season finale and it opened on a depressing note and kind of stayed that way, 
I, I wouldn't want to enter back into that headspace. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be like, oh, well, let's stay depressed for another ten minutes or so so we can honor Kuil's death. It's like, no, that's they're honoring Kuil's death, um, but these but this characters... this is a new episode. Yeah, and plus the, it would make sense that these scout troopers would not honor his death. They're just yeah. doing their job. They don't know the story and what's going on. Um, <laughs> oh, but it was funny. I do think... Uh, and it just kept going. Yeah, it did. Um, the droid, IG-11, who's voiced, by the way, by Taika Waititi. Right. Um, <laughs> he, he voices some really good characters. I think when it comes to performance, Andy Serkis is one of the greatest motion capture CG actors. But yeah. I think when it comes to characterization and voice, uh, in terms of humor at least, memorable uh, characters, I think Taika's up there. He uh, does not a good perhaps, job. I don't think Taika can make the motion capture work as much as Andy Serkis. Yeah. And Taika was not the one who motion captured IG-11. Right. But I think Taika just brings something to the table with how he performs these characters. And I think it's it's something really special. I honestly so, don't... Well, never mind. At first I thought it might have been like a... Like the situation with the droid from Solo. Where yeah. there was like a green screen person walking behind them with like different pieces that they controlled and stuff right actually um, to my knowledge solo uh, you're talking about a female droid correct the maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking of k2so from rogue one but one of K2SO those droids in was there... motion captured okay. but the female droid in solo it, it wasn't a person walking behind it was actually a green screen suited person wearing a costume of pieces over the green screen and then what they did the vfx artist did um is they removed the green screen person and the pieces hand painted them out of the scene frame what by frame mess. and then they added the cg pieces back along with the robotic body and the reason they did this is because one of the hardest things to get right in cg is lighting because lighting is really what sells everything together okay so they use the robot pieces to capture like lighting samples Yes. How does oh. this? How does light bounce off this? If this droid is metal, that's going to bounce off in a different way. Yeah, because that actually... just to me sounds like a ton of work. So oh, they, it was. they must have just motion captured IG Eleven. Then I was thinking that they had a person walking behind it, but then after I saw episodes seven and eight and all the action scenes, I was like, no, this is fully motion captured. It must be. I mean, maybe in some parts, I'm not sure how they did IG Eleven. But I'm glad we're kind of on this topic because I wanted to talk for a little bit about the technical prowess. Um, Industrial Light and Magic is this really proficient visual effects company. And they have this new software, this new, not software, but um, it's called Stagecraft. And it's a virtual set. And if you can imagine with me for a second, a room where most of the walls are all like LED screens. And projected okay. on these screens are environments. And so you can get really crazy with this. So you know how some movies have the directors looking through virtual reality cameras so that they can film as though they were actually on these fictitious worlds? Yeah. Well, basically, stagecraft is like that, where it can change itself. The projection can shift the parallax effect based on where you're putting the camera. So by using a regular camera with these special modifications, you can film like you're actually on this planet. So all that just to say, they use stagecraft for a lot of Mandalorian, not just in placing the actors in these environments, but also with the lighting. 
Because especially for Mando, he has this, like, chrome armor, and that's going to show so much lighting. And, yeah. um, and it's really cool. In fact, there was a story that Kathleen Kennedy shared where a Disney executive actually came onto the set, the stagecraft set, and actually went up to John Favreau and said, John, I thought you told me you weren't going to build anything. He was <laughs> that fooled by it. And I huh. think that that's just so cool. So anyway, all that just to say, if you're a storyteller listening and you don't really know half of what we're talking about, um, the reason I'm bringing this up is new technology is coming out that allows for smaller budgeted films to use this technology to look big budget. So anyway... All that just to say, really cool innovations that this show has done. Yeah, um, but and I think for the most I, part, all of their effects are pretty, pretty dang believable. Yeah, but there is one story that I think is really cool uh, because this show is not what you would call traditionally small budget. They had yeah. over one hundred million dollars to make this, um, but according to Dave Filoni, there was one scene probably in the season finale and episode seven that required you know a massive amount of stormtroopers however they didn't have enough costumes uh and so what they did was they contacted members of the 501st legion fan club which are a bunch of cosplayers that own like stormtrooper outfits oh and so he asked them to help him out so some of those people are actually cosplayers that's a dream come true right there for a cosplayer isn't it it's just so cool and i think stories like that or what make this powerful is that Star Wars is more now than just a movie. It's a culture. And the fan base is a huge part of Star Wars's survival and relevance throughout these generations. And yeah. so having cosplayers getting to be involved in major scenes in The Mandalorian is really cool. And I think really special. Hmm. So anyway, that's my little uh, tirade. But James... Uh, I guess going into specifics now, what are some of your favorite moments from the show? Like characters or scenes or moments that you just went, oh man, that's, that's really good storytelling. Um, I would say the first, the scene that I talked about earlier at the end of the first episode uh, was a huge moment for me just because I could never imagine this character showing anybody mercy Yeah. Um, or yeah, for the sake of a bounty, you know, giving up that bounty. Um, never made much sense to me throughout the first episode. I was like, okay, I, I've got a pretty good feeling of what this character is. I can put him in a small box. Yeah. Um, I can put him in a small box and like, um, this is who he's going to be and this is what he's going to act like. And then at the end of season or episode one, I'm like, well, this changes everything. This flips everything on its head and this show is going to be totally different and I'm glad it is. Yeah. Um, so I think that that moment is, is really impactful for me um obviously ig11 sacrifice walking through the river of lava yeah. uh that one's really big for me um there are others but i have this show is so fresh in my mind it's only been a week since i finished it um yeah. so i don't know what about you i've got a few um from an action standpoint because if you guys know me you know i love a good action scene and it's so much more than just flashy visuals. It's about the choreography and the sound and the pacing. Uh, one of the best action scenes, I think, was actually at the very end when uh, the armorer, played by Emily Swallow, uses her uh, forging tools to beat the crap out of a bunch of stormtroopers. And the fact oh, that yeah. she hits them hard enough where their helmets shatter apart was like, oh my gosh, that's intense. Yes. And I that loved cool. that. 
it was it was really cool. Um, one thing I liked as well is that this movie, excuse me, this series, could have easily um, fallen into the Rise of Skywalker and Star Wars trilogy uh, compulsive disorder of holding on to side characters so desperately. And with Kuil, uh, his like, I have spoken, and uh, all that, just who he is. And Cara Dune, you have your strong female lead. And you could have held on to those two for as long as the series would allow you to. But at the very end of the season, Jon Favreau kind of reaffirms himself and us by saying, this is about the child and Mando. This isn't about really anyone else. We're keeping this focused. And I, I liked that it just kind of tidied itself up in that way. Yeah. Um, that was my... Yeah. That was I not really a moment I loved, just a overall uh, A good decision. Yes. Um, I think another thing that... Um, just to jump off that really quick, and then we'll get back to it. your favorite moments. But another thing that this series could have easily done is could have just jam-packed it with references to other to other characters, to other places. And there yeah. are a few here and there. But if you don't really know Star Wars super duper well, you won't get the references anyway. Right. So it just feels like flavor. Um, Which I think is a good thing. And I yeah, because I it's I've restraint. Read, yeah. And I've read some reviews talking a bit about how, ugh, there's fan service here and stuff. And I think episode five is huge on fan service because there's a lot of talk about like, like, oh, that's Han Solo's same pose. And, oh, we're back in the cantina. But fan service is not inherently bad. It's just about what you do with it. Because in a world as big as Star Wars, you're going to have crossover. If the Mandalorian is a bounty hunter that works with scum... It's going to be an inevitability that he comes to the Mos Eisley Cantina, or and thank you know. goodness they did. You know, yeah. I think it's a an easy pitfall to say, "Oh, we'll just make a new planet, make a new yeah. bar, make a new theme song, add right. a new bartender droid, add some new crazy characters." But instead, finally, we decide to go back to other locations that already exist because there's such a huge plethora of them anyway. Right. It just happens that Mos Eisley Cantina is one of the most memorable of those locations yes yes very much so um i love uh there's a moment i wasn't i didn't know how i felt at first but when i watched uh, the season finale again i actually liked a lot more again that was the yes <laughs> you watched the whole show twice yes uh holy once, cow <laughs> once was uh with some friends and then with my brother we watched the season finale and oh, then cool. uh, I showed my family uh, the whole series, and that was oh really fun. Gosh. But the moment when Mando is with IG-11 and he, we see his face, um, I wasn't sure how I felt. I, I kind of had a hunch that we would see his face eventually. Yeah. Um, but his face looked so ordinary. It was just a regular dude. He wasn't this hardened warrior. He wasn't particularly handsome. His facial hair wasn't trimmed. Uh, and he had just been through war. He didn't look the best. Um, yeah. He was just a guy. And I realized, like, that's all he really is, but that that really helped with the character, you know? Yeah. It's a huge risk. Um, and I actually liked I Pedro Pascal and his stuntmen, who he worked closely with, his body doubles, did a great job at The Mandalorian, and you're able to really get a sense of what's going on inside of his head just by his movements. How fast does he turn? How how does he react to stimuli in his environment? 
Um, I think one of these episodes, uh, <clears throat> Pedro Pascal was not available for filming. He had a different commitment. And so for one episode, it might have been the third one. Uh, that's all of his body doubles. That isn't Pedro. <laughs> that's just, brilliant. And he they used his voice to you know dub over his lines. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think John Favreau does a great job of directing this character. Mm-hmm. We're able to know what's going on in his mind, the way the camera is positioned, the way his head tilts. We're able to get a sense of like yeah. I think I know what's behind that. Yeah, and, and once so, again, it's another move that keeps things simple and keeps things streamlined. Like right you know what your main character looks like. You don't have to think too hard about how they're feeling. Um, you know, all their yeah. movements are, are pretty clearly choreographed. There are some subtleties in there that, you know, if you want to read into them, you can, and it's fun and interesting. Cause it's like, this is mysterious, but also just such a simple character on the surface, which oh, yeah. does make it accessible. As you said earlier, I also want to say too, having the Mandalorian be a warrior trained from birth having all these weapons and gadgets, which, again, do remain consistent. Uh, the whistling birds he ends up getting, which at first seem overpowering because they can destroy multiple enemies at once, they don't always work. There are some foes he meets that are just simply stronger. Yeah. Um, and they're a very small fight that's very underappreciated is when he's fighting the big, burly guy in uh, Episode six, I believe, when he's with these group of criminals trying to free another guy in this prison ship. And he's fighting the guy who looks like the devil. He's got red skin and horns. Yeah. But, like, all of his gadgets fail. Even when he fights the uh, the rhinoceros. There's a name I can't remember off the top of my head. The Mudhorn, I think? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But he's fighting it. And he, like, for both of these, he uses his grappling hook. He uses his flamethrower. He uses, you know... He his, tries everything. He tries everything. And Except just for the vaporizing rifle, of course. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. Um... And I love that. You know, this guy is trained from birth. He's this warrior. He's a skilled fighter. And he doesn't win all the time, you know? The Mudhorn would have killed him. Like, you know, this dagger that he has. Only Star Wars fans would really know, but the fact that it vibrates in his hand, it's called a vibroblade. Uh, apparently, they're really powerful. And if that Mudhorn would have run into him, because as you know, he kind of draws it and just kind of braces himself yeah. as it's about to, like, uh, run into him. That probably would have killed it, but it would have probably killed Mando along with it. And I don't even I don't even know what the heck a vibroblade is. It's I don't know. It's it's a Star Wars lore. I don't even remember fully what it is. But you don't really need to know, you know? You you get a sense that this guy is just not this guy can't beat everything. You yeah. know? Every time he encounters certain people, I'm not thinking like, ugh, you know. He's going to just mop the floor with them in 30 seconds. It's like, no, that's not always the case. And sometimes Mando doesn't come out on top. Yeah, uh, it's very rough and tumble. Right. With the the big strong guy, as I said earlier, from the prison ship sequence, I kind of knew based on the tone and the story, I, I knew Mando was going to come out on top. But the fight They were lasted. totally going to fight, too. Like, yeah. you, I knew from, like, <laughs> the first second. I'm like, well, these two are going to square off Oh yeah. fairly soon. Oh, yeah. But... What I loved is, even though they did end up fighting, the fight lasted a lot longer than I thought, and the opponent ended up being a lot more difficult than any of us previously thought. He was fireproof, the flamethrower did nothing. Um, I don't know, I just... I liked it. It was very, uh, very simple. Um, 
there's a lot to like about this show and I baby Yoda um, which for clarification's sake I know is not actually Yoda uh, it's we don't yet know the name of Yoda's species um, officially this creature is called the child um, but baby Yoda is a slang term fans are calling <laughs> it um, ooh I also remembered what I was going to talk about one of my favorite character performances uh, I just found so immersive and just fun to watch was Werner Herzog playing the client. Uh, he's that old white man that the Mandalorian oh, the Scottish, meets. Sort of half Scottish I loved, accent. I loved his presence. And my favorite scenes are actually when man, the Mandalorian walks in and you see these stormtroopers in these gritty, bruised, damaged costumes and they don't yeah. say anything. They're not like, here he is, sir. They just look at the Mandalorian and this music that I think it's Ludwig Goranson Graninson, I forget his name, but he he also did Black Panther's score. Um, okay, oh that does, makes so much sense. He does really good work. Those soundtracks are very similar. He I mean, a, without the Kendrick Kendrick Lamar breaks and sure, yeah. <laughs> but like Ludwig does a really good job in this series. His score is amazing, yeah. and it's so good because it's not trying to be John Williams. It's trying to be mm. its own thing. But true. this the score every time we get this tense like the stormtroopers are just watching Mando approach this client. There's just this tension, and I love it so dang much. And then Werner Herzog's voice, just like, I understand that the client may be difficult, but this is something we are willing to tolerate for a reduced fee. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I love that was probably an exact line too. Well, there was something similar. It was something like, uh, termination is also acceptable for a reduced fee. And then the scientist cuts in, and then he's like, I was merely being pragmatic. I understand that bounty hunting is a complicated profession. I don't know. I just You have this entire show memorized. <laughs> Can we just do like a live stream of you reciting the whole show instead? I don't think I don't the world's ready for that. Here. I don't think I'm ready for that. Um, I'm ready. But I just, I loved Werner Herzog's character. And I also loved just the atmosphere whenever man, the Mando, the Mandalorian enters <laughs> in to just that space. I love how it feels. It feels very, it feels very, I know some people might say like a Western, but for me it felt more like a film noir. Like this hero mm. walks in and there's this, I don't know, just and Everyone this turns and it's sort of tense. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. And I love it. I love it. Does, I love this that. show does feel like a Western in a lot of ways, but I think you're correct that that is definitely a noir. That could be qualified as a noir thing as well. Yeah. Um, and you, you get a sense right away that even though the bounty hunter deals with morally gray people all the time, there's something morally bankrupt about the Imperial safe house when he walks in. You just yeah. feel that, yeah, Mandalorian, the Mandalorian could take all these people out but there's just something different. There's something more sinister about these people and how they operate. And yeah. I love that because I think that's what a lot of modern movies are trying to bring in today is like, hey, we're woke, you know? We understand that there's no such thing as a really bad guy. And so we're just going to have all the evil people be these gray area villains. Like, are they evil? Are they not? You know, who knows? And the frustrating thing is, Regardless of if your villain is truly evil, there needs to be an obstacle for the hero to overcome. And right. if you're going to do a sci-fi or fantasy, 
or a sci-fi fantasy, you people that watch that genre expect an evil person that's evil. Like, there's a person, they're evil, we need to take care of them. Yeah. Um, this was something that Frozen 2 failed to do. They pro- failed to provide us with a evil clear person. antagonist. Yeah. There yes. was no clear antagonist. The clear yes. antagonists they thought of were not actually clear antagonists. They were not. And, um, I don't know. I'll let just to say I'm glad that even in writing this world of bounty hunting, which is inherently a gray area, John Favreau still gives us villains. He still gives right. us the Empire, but on a more grounded level. And, and I just you can still have your great, great characters, you know? You've got oh, Grief yeah. Karga, who's probably my favorite character in the whole show. He's yeah. he's Apollo a guy Creed. where it's like, what? Apollo Creed. Yeah, yeah. Carl Weathers. He yeah, does he such does a, a good, good job. job. I Hello, like him. Mando. I see you've brought the bait. He I've just, brought my men. Yeah, I don't know. He just seems like I, I liked him. Um, yeah. Even though he he never felt sleazy. That's what I'm going to say. He okay, never felt sleazy, and his kind of character is generally a sleazy kind. Yeah. Um, the manager which, of the Bounty Hunters Guild. Yeah, and it made it easier for him to transition into more of a supporting protagonist character near the end of the season. Yeah. Um, which was great. And then, oh my gosh, like... Um, what's his name? Moth Gideon. He says that Grief Cargo was like a former magistrate or something. I'm like, ooh, that's fun. Like that's <laughs> that sort of gives me a picture of what this guy's past might be like. That's really cool. Like when yeah. the Republic fell, he turned to something else. It's yep. pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I, I I loved his character, and you're right. I I'm surprised to say this, but you're right. Um, he's not sleazy, but he should be. You know, right? Uh, yeah. He should it's hard be. to encapsulate. But, he, you know, and there's something funny. Um, in, uh, I think it was chapter, yeah, it was chapter three. It's when Mando comes back. He's delivered the client, uh, the child, and he's going back to Grief Karga for more pucks, more work. And he's like, everyone hates you, Mando. You know, he's like, yeah. I even got some payment myself. And he's talking very loudly. And I'm like, yeah, he shouldn't be. Like, <laughs> there's all these scum that hate Mando and you're kind of stirring the pot. But right. as I, I rewatched it, I'm like, I just love how he's so confident in himself and his job. that he's just like, you know, he's never a guy on the front lines. He always likes managing the front line people, but he's just, you know, it's just business to him. And I think that's right. what makes him not as sleazy. He's not trying to bring people in for a personal connection and then jeopardize that. He's really just doing this because he's selfish, you know? Yeah. And I love how when the child, when Baby Yoda heals him, he shoots his own men and just says, you know what? I can't follow through with it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and I, I love that this movie, this series, has very obvious bad guys but it also has a very obvious good and that child the purity of it the cuteness of it is enough to soften these hard hearts and i I just loved how that seemed to be such a universal theme this theme of like yeah there are people that are scum but there are some beings that are so pure that they don't deserve to have the scum of the world corrupt them and i think that was a really cool theme yeah, and I think I think that that brings us back to what we were talking about with with clear bad guys, clear good guys, and then this gray character, uh, Grief Karga. Yeah. Um, you, I think that gray characters are okay and acceptable in 
and are much more ex receivable in a world where the goods and bads are very clearly laid out. Um, yeah. For example, the child and for example, the client or Moff Gideon, yeah. like those guys are straight laced villains and <laughs> the child is clearly like the purest, most wholesome thing and <laughs> brings hope to everything and yeah. is super cute and everybody loves him. I, her. I do think that's something I want to say too, is I don't know if there's any way for John Favreau to know for certain that the child would become this massive internet sensation and everyone would love him. Yeah. But one thing I really respect is that the series for the most part doesn't draw out how cute the child is. The only time it does it is again in chapter five when there's this mechanic um, and she, you know, she has the pit droids and she's like, Oh, he's so cute. You know, who would ever want to harm you? And I'm like, okay, we get it. He's cute. You don't need to force it on me, movie. You don't need to be condescending. Um, I don't think it was forcing. I think it was just her character <laughs> responding to something that's rightfully very cute. Right. I just, um, I don't know. I felt like, uh, I don't, again, there's no way of them knowing how the fandom would have reacted to Baby Yoda. Yeah. But I just feel it was a little over the top. Everyone else, for the most part, I feel everyone else responded accordingly with the child, you know? They're yeah. like, yep, he's cute. We got to protect him. You know, we got to do this. But she really just served as like a, a conduit for the fans, I feel, or a conduit for how they would want people to react. Uh, I, I liked what Cara Dune did uh, near the end of the season as well. She was like, I don't do the baby thing. <laughs> and then near the end of like the, like probably the eighth episode, she's like, I don't know. There was something, she was holding the ba the child very close to yeah. her and she seemed to grow acquainted with child yeah and it was just small touches like that that i noticed just on the first watch that i'm just like oh this is great like if yeah. this is the kind of detail work that goes into things that i've already noticed i can't wait to watch it again and see what other details i pick up on yeah yeah it was really cool and i love how we're getting a star wars series that its climax is not some massive okay spoilers for rise of skywalker but yeah, go watch it, whatever. Skip ahead 30, 40 seconds. But I love that the climax of the series is not some emperor shooting lightning into a sky, disabling an entire fleet of starships. Right. The climax of this series is one TIE fighter and a guy trying to blow it up without using a starship. Like, jetpacking onto the TIE fighter to try and blow it up. That's what yes. the climax is. The climax is one TIE fighter... And the guy inside of it. And I, I love that. I love how this film never blows its scope out of proportion. It's always grounded. It's always very realistic. At least as realistic as Star Wars can be. Mm -hmm. uh, the Mandalorian gets his jetpack. But doesn't become an expert with it right away. You know? The armorer says he needs training. But he uses... He has enough pre-training to rocket up to the TIE Fighter. And use the rest of his training to blow it up. All that just to say, this is a really good series. Got a lot of talented people behind it. I think Jean Favreau does a great job helming the creative direction in this, channeling enough parts of the fandom and I'm, I assume his own fanboyishness along with innovating this new uh, world, this new part of Star Wars we haven't seen and showing us that yes, Disney can innovate and there can be fresh original stories they do feel like Star Wars, and they do feel like they belong in this galaxy far, far away. 
Um, I was going to say, I'm just imagining Jon Favreau in the middle of directing um, the uh, live-action Lion King movie, and uh, <laughs> I'm just imagining like every time he sits down in that chair to make a new big decision to create that movie, you know, maybe in 2016, 2017, in the forefront of his mind, he was really just thinking about what the heck he was going to do with this great opportunity to make this original Star Wars series about <laughs> about the man about Mandalorians, because um, yeah. it seems like a passion project. Uh, there's just a lot of heart, and uh, something I've been sort of tumbling around in my brain since we started recording is. Um, this show really encapsulates a good sense of adventure. Mm, uh, it really feels yeah. like an odyssey, um, which is something that recent Star Wars films have really failed to do as well, uh, because right. they may show you new worlds, they may show you new planets and locations and creatures, but they don't give you good characters to connect with within those worlds. Right. And because of that, we don't really care, and we don't really feel like we've, we've gone to faraway places. Um, whereas with The Mandalorian it takes its time with the worlds and gives you good characters to associate with. And I felt connected to the characters um, on each step of the journey um, that the Mandalorian went on with the child. Yeah. Um, and because of that, whenever the gang got back together for episode seven and eight, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the dream team. This is so <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm geeking great. out. It doesn't uh, make sense is... why Mando would choose those people, you know? Yeah. It's not just like, oh, the gang's back together, throw us your money. It's like, right. nope, this is a hard-earned climax to the only people that Mando really trusts with this yep. child, you know? Yep, this actually makes sense. And yeah. the dynamics between them were great and yeah. organic. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's it's just good. It's It's all around good. And the sense of adventure within it was something that captured my heart especially. Yeah. Um, just because that's the kind of thing I'm into. I want to feel like I've been transported somewhere. Yes. And uh, this series succeeds in doing just that. Absolutely. Now, James, before we go to our itch to pitch for today, I wanted to ask you something you actually talked about in our holiday episode about Elf and just holiday movies in general and the conventions that come with those. You yeah. were mentioning that The Mandalorian feels in many ways like Elf. And John Favreau, you feel planted a lot of story elements in there that made it feel that way. I was wondering if you wanted to take some time to talk a bit about your comments that you made earlier. Oh yeah. Uh, well, it's still an ongoing theory. Uh, okay. Elf and the Mandalorian exist in the same universe. Um, <laughs> now here's, here's the running theory. Here's okay. the running theory. Yeah. Um, be receptive to this. Cause I think it might be uh, a bit of a stretch, but um, I think the two shows were directed by the same person. John Favreau, yes. Yeah, they were. He even makes oh my a cameo. Gosh. He makes a cameo in Elf. Oh my gosh, Daniel. <laughs> they must be connected then. Here's the thing. Have you ever wondered why the child is small, green, and has pointy ears? No. It's because he's from the North Pole, Daniel. Don't think too much about it. Just embrace it. They're connected <laughs> okay. in a very special way. In a very, very special way. Now, very soon, whenever the child reaches a certain age, it will start speaking. And I, I'm calling it right now. It's going to be voiced by Will Ferrell. And it's going to be so, so clear to you <laughs> that this whole thing was all an elaborate crossover. Uh, 
There's just a knife in my heart. Excuse me. It's so violent and unexpected. Pour salt into the open wound. Don't stop. But think more about it. If John no. Favreau did, in fact, make a cameo. The more I think in the about Mandalorian, it, the more it hurts. And in the elf. In elf. So not only did John Favreau cameo an elf, he was the doctor who kind of uh, did some genetic testing to make sure he was, you know, uh, that elf buddy. The child. The elf. Yeah, To right. make sure he was the child. He didn't write elf, but nope, my he language. did direct it. He did direct Choice. elf. Um, I don't know about this theory of yours. I don't want it to be true. Will Ferrell voicing the child would ruin him permanently. He wouldn't ruin my childhood. He'd ruin me. Okay, think about it, though. It wouldn't be Buddy the Elf's voice. It would be more like Megamind's voice. No. no. Does that make more sense? I think that I'm, makes a bit I'm more sense I'm smelling a very heinous YouTube poop. <laughs> <laughs> Metro Man. <laughs> Just, I, I, okay, one thing, another thing I got to say about the Mandalorian that is, this is legit. I'm going to take off my tinfoil hat. Thank you. Why does the child use stock fo- like stock baby audio clips for its voice? It's baby. It makes me so uncomfortable. Little baby. It's just like that. I'm like, no, stop. Why can't you make alien sounds? <laughs> it really stop bothers using stock you? baby sounds. Yes, it does. It genuinely bothers What would bothers you want me. it to have? Like some kind of crocodile. Like, you know? No, I just want an original artist to make the sounds for this child kind of like r2d2 so to speak yeah kind of like from scratch making well maybe maybe they didn't have the budget i don't know i don't know the limitations of a hundred million dollar project i i will say one more disappointment okay daniel go for this is the um this is the most recent star wars production outside of rise of skywalker and i was expecting something from it that i did not receive why was there not any new Star Wars technology that could blow up planets? Everything blows up planets now in Star Wars. Why does that not exist in the Mandalorian? Why can't Baby Yoda blow up planets? Yeah, Why seriously. Why can't he shoot laser beams from his We need big black a new eyes? starship that can blow up not just five planets at a time. How about 12? There aren't even that many planets that I remember in Star Wars. I was I was going to mention this earlier, but our our previous Star Wars entry, we were talking a bit about the ridiculousness of having every single Star Destroyer have the ability to destroy planets, and how it was such a ridiculous hassle for the writers to scramble and find like, oh, we gotta raise the stakes. Stakes. But here's my thing that I think the Mandalorian could have done better. Why not one up this and have every Tie Fighter have planet destroying abilities? Exactly. Exactly. Why are we not in the writing room? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Just be so much better. It was so easy. I mean, think about it. If you have enemy uh, cruisers coming out of space, just send one rinky-dink TIE fighter, pew-pew, and then literally blow up the cruiser. If yeah, it has and where was Han Solo? Lasers. Yeah, exactly. Just Actually, you know what, James? Let's have that be our fun little prompt before we go to Itch to Pitch. Okay. Um, let's have... Okay, James, I don't want to do it myself because I feel it would take too much time, but I'm going to have you, James... Kathleen Kennedy has hired you and said, The Mandalorian is disgustingly original and creative. We need you to Disneyfy this and add, make it feel more like our movies. What would you okay. do differently? Okay. Go for it. Um, I would bring out um, whoever was the head of the animation department from Rowana, 
who's never directed anything. Uh, I'm just going to pull them out and make them direct it because that's what people do now. If you're good at if you're good at being a lead animator or a supervising animator, that means that you can direct a movie now. Okay. So, uh, yeah, whoever did the animation direction for Moana, maybe you've already had directing experience, but you are now directing The Mandalorian. Um, I'm going to say The Mandalorian was not only a foundling, but also a princess. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. He so, uh he ran away from his his father, uh who wanted him to stay on his home planet to protect, and found the Mandalorian planet, uh which so he's a, retcon he's... still exists. I'm gonna pull a JJ Abrams, retcon alert. So at the very Mandal- end of the Mandalore season finale, was not destroyed. it's gonna be revealed that Mandalore is actually alive yes. and well, and that there's a bunch of Mandalorians. Maybe the armorer could tell him yes. that, like you know she could have told him this massive detail, any point when he arrived yeah. on that planet to start bounty hunting, but she chooses the very last minute to say, hey, by the way, Mandalorians are slowly congregating onto the planet. Yeah, he could ask, where did no, no, everyone no. go wait, wait, after wait, wait, the wait. fight? Daniel, we gotta milk this for all it's worth. She has to say, Mando, I have to tell you something. And then she doesn't tell him. And then later, we'll have the director tweet and say, this is what she was going to say. <laughs> Mandalore still exists. That's what's going to happen. We'll have the creative team patch it up. Any kind of... Yeah, this is great. Because why write a movie and then make it when you can just keep writing it after the movie's been released? J.K. Rowling did it. Yeah, keep, why can't keep we? Just on making. Twitter is the new... <laughs> The new place to create original content. Now, James, there's a massive problem here with Mandalorian, and that okay. is the fact that Baby Yoda does not have any attachment to a major franchise character. So let's okay. have Baby Yoda be Yoda's baby. Okay. Because here's the thing. Jedi are forbidden from having emotional attachments, and the idea of Yoda procreating with someone of his own species is mildly disturbing. <laughs> but we're not, we're not going to touch on that in any way. <laughs> um, because no one wants to know that. So <laughs> I was at first I was going to protest and say, why can't it be a reincarnation? But then I thought, well, that's what they did with Palpatine. So why not? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. There's one more thing I have to, we have to dedicate at least 15 minutes of screen time to baby Yoda being cute and falling and tripping over things. We and there can be like plucky, he goes on. There can be like plucky orchestral music playing bum, to like bum, 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 as they bump 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 bum, as he trips yeah. and falls over something. Yeah, and then the He's music so kind of abruptly stops, kind of like the orchestral equivalent of a record scratch. Where it's like yeah. bum, bum, bum. and then he gets back up and then bump 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 bump. You know, continues walking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And how about this, James? So you know how. The problem right now with The Mandalorian is that there are filler episodes, not filler, they're episodic, kind of like a Western, you know, kind of like Monster of the Week, what's going on. And uh, uh, Chapter 2 is kind of, it does this whole sideline thing a little too well, you know, where it's like the Jawas steal his thing. By the way, off character, just so you know, the Mando killing Jawas is the most messed up cathartic experience I've ever had. (laughs) I agree. I agree. <laughs> just like throwing them off their sand crawler and just disintegrating I, them. There's some dark part of my soul that I believe came from the devil himself that just went, <sighs> Yes. I can rest now. Sweet justice for all the horrible <laughs> things the Jawas have done. Anyway, so back to our little thing. Yes, James, back to the writing room. Yes, back to the writing room. Chapter 2, 
does that a little too well. I have an idea of how we can spice up the season finale and drag okay. it out. Yeah. Here's what we can do. We'll have an entire episode where Mando accidentally loses Baby Yoda. You know how they're bringing him into the city? Well, why yeah. not drag it out more and hype up the finale by having Baby Yoda kind of see a shiny thing? Or maybe there's a group of bounty hunters trying to collect the reward and they don't quite trust Grief Karga. And yeah. so they're kind of distract the baby and kidnap him. And he kind of goes on his own adventures as Mando tries to hunt down the people. You know, completely filler, not even an episodic, not even a brilliant crafted it's its own planet, it's its own world. It would just be completely for filler. Uh, but it would give us a chance to really milk that merch for all it's worth. You know? Yeah. Literally, if you look on the Disney Plus synopsis for this episode, it would just say, buy that merch. Literally, Link the episode title, the chap- it would be called Chapter 7, The Merch. That's all it would say, you know? Do you think Do you think there could be, like, some subtlety, like, maybe Yoda gets sold to a merchant for, for like, 20, 20 minutes of the show, and really it's, like subconsciously we're telling you to buy merchandise but it's actually like a play on the merch can you define subtlety i forgot what it means that's a fair point okay screw it i've been a disney exec for so long i've forgotten (laughs) what it means to not say something directly i tell you what daniel instead of saying the merch for the title let's just copy and paste the link to all of the store (laughs) options for the baby yoda mugs and plushies <laughs> and posters. And we'll subliminally flash it on the screen <laughs> one frame at a time. <laughs> so then at the very end, it's like, I have a strange craving to buy my uh, my Funko Pop Baby Yoda, you know. <laughs> but there needs to okay. be a crossover with other Disney properties in some way, whether it's referential or there's a brief cameo. Let's have, well, Marvel heroes don't fit into Star Wars. But let's have Robert Downey Jr. play a stormtrooper. It's not okay. going to affect the story at all, but people will freak out and start making fan theories, and that's really all that matters, is that people think about our properties when they're watching properties that are unrelated at all to what's going on. Okay. Okay, so I think we've we've definitely corrected the Mandalorian and made it better. Um, shall we move <laughs> on to Itch to Pitch? Yes, let's. Okay, itch to pitch time. So, our pitch today is from two lovebirds, one from Wisconsin, one from Oregon, oh Emily boy. and Jacob. Thank oh you so much, boy. both of you, for working together. Now, wait, hold on your... a second. So, Emily and Jacob both submitted pitches separately in previous episodes, so I'm wondering if Casually Critical can also be a matchmaking service. If you submit... <laughs> <laughs> then you will fall in love, guaranteed. You, guaranteed. Big heart eyes. <laughs> All right, well, anyway, jokes aside, let's so, see what they have to say. Okay. Uh, Emily and Jacob submitted something called Me and You and okay. Keanu. Ooh. It's a sitcom. <laughs> uh, the male and female lead are included in a love, are involved in a love triangle where they are both in love with Keanu Reeves. But he isn't interested in either of them and wants to get the two of them together. (laughs) The two leads are fictional, but Keanu Reeves is just himself, and his friendship to the leads is never explained. He's kind of just there at the beginning. (laughs) So, uh... I'm imagining the pilot episode right now. Bear with me here. But it'll be this guy... uh, It'll start off with familiar settings. So it'll be kind of this bar. This man walks in, the young male lead, and he's talking with a friend who will be a reoccurring side character. And he's talking about this... Uh, <clears throat> this roommate of his that he just has feelings for can't explain or he just uh, 
you know, he just has a really cool roommate he deeply appreciates, and the other yeah. guy is just like, okay, well, you know, let's, you know, talk it out. And they, they have this very ambiguous conversation. You don't really know what's going on. And then we cut to another scene where it's very similar, different bar. The female lead goes in and says there's this man that she's rooming with that she's really attracted to and trying to talk through it. So the audience is naturally like, okay, you know, it's going to okay, happen. Okay, so Whatever. they're in love. And then they both... They both walk into the door and and look, and it's edited in such a way where they seem to see each other. The male walks in through one door, looks to the left of the screen. The female walks in, looks to the right, and it shows a three shot where they're both looking at Keanu Reeves in the center of the room. It's like, and what is he doing? Is he just sitting there, standing? No, he's he's watching something on his iPad, and they both walk over, and he's in the center of the couch. They both walk up and kind of <laughs> sit next to him, and they're like, Keanu, what are you doing? He's like. Oh, yeah, I'm preparing for John Wick 4. It's really cool. It's supposed to be physically intense. He's watching, like, like, karate demos or something. And they're they're all, like, he's he's looking at both of them, but he's mostly watching, like, you know, yeah, it's like karate demos, so he can kind of, you know, kind of like re- or resources that he's perusing. Okay. And he's watching his iPad because it's his job, right? He's preparing for this role, but they're both looking at him. They're like, yeah, oh, that's so nice. That's great. And they're both just like... <laughs> absolutely lovely. Yeah, oh, just so beautiful. Absolutely, yeah, something know? about martial arts. Let me tell you. They're both <laughs> just talking over each other. Yeah, they're like, they're pretending to be so into what he's into, even though they know nothing about ultimately his career or what he does. Um, and it could be interesting... Because, like, you could have Keanu, he's not toxic. No, wait, 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 I want to continue this scene. Okay, Because I think it. that this first this this first couple minutes should summarize the entire series. Right. Um, sort of to give the audience an idea. So I think Keanu should get up and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go steam some Brussels sprouts. And then he, like, stands up, tucks his iPad into the, into, like, his, like, the back of his pants or something. Yeah. And pushes the two of them together to the center of the couch because he wants them to get together and fall in love. And then he just goes and like starts, starts doing his thing. Or, you know, what would be better is if like, uh, the main, the male lead, what, what should our males lead name be? Uh, let's call him rapid fire. Let's call him Reggie. Reggie. Ooh. Okay. So he could get up and he could tuck the iPad in the back of his pants, kind of like a concealed carry weapon. Yeah. And, uh, and then he'd be like, Reggie, come with me, man. And then Reggie's, like, so excited, and the female kind of looks brief. Uh, Jelsey yeah. briefly flashes across her face. What's her name, by the way? We have Reggie uh, let's and go with... Victoria? Victoria's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, yeah. How about how about another two-syllable? Because Keanu is the only one in this show that deserves three syllables in his name. Um, <laughs> Lisa? Sure. Yeah. Reggie? Lisa and Reggie. R- yeah, Lisa... Lisa and Reggie. <laughs> That's not a mouthful at all. Uh, but yeah, he's like, Reggie, come with me, man. And he's like, ooh, okay. He's excited. Lisa has a brief, you know, flash of jealousy on her face. But Keanu walks over and, and he's kind of helping. Uh, he's like, help me with steaming these broccoli. But Keanu really has something else in mind other than steaming broccoli. <laughs> and so he's talking to Reggie and he's like, man, he's like, Lisa's such a great gal. And Reggie's like, yeah, I mean, she's, you know, she's a good friend. And then Keanu's like, friend? No, man. I think she could be more than just a friend for you. And so Keanu very overtly says they would be great together. So this helps establish where Keanu's kind of going from from there. 
And so I think that'll be a better way of establishing this. Keanu, I think all he sees Reggie as is just a bro, like a bromantic, you know, interest. Like, yeah, yeah. Reggie's just, you know, Reggie's a great guy. You know, he loves having Reggie as his roommate, but he doesn't doesn't have any romantic desire. And then right. maybe Keanu's season- busy with work. Right. And then here's an idea, James, jumping way ahead to the finale of season one. What if it's revealed Keanu's actually been dating another woman? Like he's been dating Ooh. a woman. And then episode oh my two, gosh. Reggie and Lisa treat that as him cheating on them, even though he never intended on it. This is so good because, okay, in my mind, Reggie and Lisa end up together at the end of the show. Okay. So that's that's just going along oh, well, with that Well, that idea. will definitely happen. Together, together they plot how to rub this, this woman Ooh, out of the picture. Yes. And through that, they sort of bond and become friends <laughs> and rivals at the same time. Yes. I think that that would be really fun. They're just like up late at night, just like looking at schematics of the next place that Keanu's going to be going on this date with this love interest of his. And they're just yeah. like, okay. And then you'll come in from the, the ceiling tiles and you'll, yeah. put, you'll dump, I don't know, kerosene on their candles. So the table <laughs> lights on fire while Keanu, Keanu's washing up in the bathroom. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. And then Keanu could, again, if we're not going to explain how they know him, perhaps we can also not explain certain there's certain skills he has. Like, he's just abnormally great at his reflexes and stuff. And this would be revealed to just be uh, skills and traits developed over his long physical film career. Oh, yeah. You know? It's Keanu Reeves. Yeah. And so he's just very chill, laid back. Like, yeah, man, it's all good. And, like, he's with his, you know, girlfriend or whatever. And they could just have the most wholesome relationship ever. Because yeah. it is Keanu Reeves. And so... You know, the steamed broccoli that Reggie was helping with, he, he serves her, like, a bowl of it or whatever. He's like, she's like, oh, Keanu, thank you so much. He's like, well, I can't take all the credit. Reggie, my great roommate, helped me with it. You know, he's just... <laughs> and out of focus, you can just see Reggie standing there in the doorway, his fists just, like, bunching up in rage. <laughs> they don't even know he's there. <laughs> <laughs> and it could be very funny because in season two, then, there's kind of this escalation where Reggie and Lisa both are ticked off at Keanu and kind of treat him as though he's been cheating on them, even though he really hasn't. Like, he's right. been doing himself. He's been, you know, they never asked about his love life. And so, you know, and it'd be yeah. interesting to see if there were, um, I was going to say earlier, if there was an idea that Keanu was actually not the best roommate, but Reggie and Lisa's love for him kind of overlook it. So, like, oh, okay. maybe he hasn't ever paid the rent. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know about that because the internet loves Keanu. Yeah. Uh, and we want people to like Keanu in this show, but I think it would be fun to have that kind of negative edge of him where it's yeah, like... I mean, he's not a slob. Not, no, he's not a slob. Uh, he dresses casually, but he keeps, you know, he's hygienic. Uh, yeah. He cleans up after himself. Um, perhaps it's not that he doesn't pay the rent. It's just that no one has ever asked him for rent. And so yeah, because just... they, keep, they keep covering him. Every yes. time the landlord comes, they're like, oh yeah, we'll cover Keanu's payment this month. Yeah, and then maybe in the season two climax, the finale, they actually have him pay the rent. And he's kind of surprised for a second. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, that's fine, man. Like, I've been piggybacking off you guys for months, you know? And then maybe. <laughs> like, I had no idea. Maybe we'll plant secret, kind of subtle things in season one and two where it's like he's trying to make up for his freeloading by actually paying for, like, the groceries and stuff. But he finds to his annoyance that they have snuck into his room at night and put money into his wallet so that it kind of compensates for it. So there's like this subtle financial war going on behind the scenes. Even though he's Keanu Reeves and is a multi-million dollar man. Right. Like he doesn't need financial help. If anything, they do. But they're so they want him to look at them as, you know, 
nice people and so i don't know <laughs> that'd be now, a lot I of think, fun i think i have an idea for uh an opening title sequence for this show okay um i think it can be a mixture of two things um you know in like every episode of of the retro scooby-doo where they're running in and out of doors and like chasing yeah. after each other <laughs> i think that that should be the beginning and i think the music should be a play on the zabumafu uh song because obviously this is based on me and you and zabumafu um, right <laughs> so uh there's there's got to be some sort of tie in there because the t- title is exactly like me and you and zabumafu so there could be some musical uh some musical nods towards Zabumafu. Uh, and then also there could be some instances in the opening sequence that sort of hint at the relationships that are going on. Where, I think like, it'd be fun if like, it was like an animated intro, you know, like 2d animation. Yeah. And then Keanu, it shows him after all these door to door hijinks, Keanu finally jukes out of the way. So they both run into each other and they're both in each other's arms. And they look at each other with repulsed faces. Like you're not Keanu. And then they try and run away, but he grabs them and tries to force them together. But they're like <laughs> magnets that just repel naturally. And, they, and he finally fails. So it'd be a fun little physical like demonstration of the relationships you're going to expect in the show. And well, there could yeah. even there could even be like a, a rule of threes thing because I had this idea where like Keanu is like dodging things like in the Matrix. So like maybe Reggie offers him like a tray of cupcakes and like uh, while like in the middle of the hallway and then Keanu just dodges under it, like on his, on his <laughs> knees. And then like, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe Lisa offers like a, I don't know, an autobiography of somebody he likes or like a Valentine or something. She just holds it up at his face and he just like jumps over it or something like dodges it like a spy. <laughs> and then in the very third, like in the very last one where they catch him in the middle, he dodges to the side and they both clash together. could be That's like a great. nice little... A nice little package. I think it'd be a, a cute little show. It'd be kind of fun if we kept having that happening in the intro. It's like they're kind of meant to be together. Like life keeps forcing them together, but they, they don't want to. Right, um, right. Kind of that natural tension. And I like the fact that we're planting seeds early on that uh, Keanu wants them together. And the universe kind of does. Like they're actually really good together. But yeah. they just don't see it yet. Even right. though Keanu's outright said, you guys would be great together. You know, whatever. <laughs> I think it would be interesting if Keanu started using his celebrity influence to try and get them together. Like, he <laughs> keeps doing, like, John Wick 75 or whatever. And mm-hmm. he's, like, you know, he's we, we get some Keanu time where he's with, like, the producer. And he's, like, yeah, yeah, I like this idea. But can we have a subplot where there's a woman <laughs> who wants to be with John Wick? But, like, they're meant to be together. But... They don't want it to happen, you know? And the producer's like, yeah, I actually like that. And the more overt Keanu tries to get, he starts like, I don't know, maybe there's another subplot where Keanu just can't have a bad career. Like, he deliberately tries to sabotage his own films, (laughs) but they end up enhancing, like, his celebrity. Like, it could be a reference to this godlike reverence that the internet has for Keanu that kind of scares him in real life. Right, right. So, like, he's like... Uh, maybe we'll have John Wick as like this ballerina, dresses in a tutu and and he doesn't <laughs> fire any guns. He just kisses all the men and they die. You know, like he's deliberately trying to be anti John Wick so people right. will hate him. He's trying to but, make it a bad movie. But then people end up loving it. They're like, oh, this just infuses the genre with something new and fresh. And you know, <laughs> it's just like what? Like, and the same thing could even happen with um <clears throat> with 
the the main plot too where like um john wick just wants to prove to both of them that he's just a regular guy and he's not he's john not wick? sorry keanu, keanu. <laughs> thank you keanu wants to prove to both of his roommates that he's just a normal guy like you don't need to like you know you don't need to worship me but in the end they just wind up appreciating him more and more in his attempts Maybe to make himself more human i'm, I'm sensing a meta narrative with keanu where he kind of discovers yes. himself along the way yes he's yes, like definitely. why am i loved so much you know <laughs> i don't know is it for me or is it for just my image and the things that i'm on screen for who am i, I think- when no one's looking I think it would be cool in the like the last season if we get some references to how these roommates possibly met Keanu. Mm. Maybe in a quest to kind of become ordinary, he's um, he decided to put himself in this kind of lower income apartment and kind of put them in a lottery where he kind of gets put with random roommates, um, and he just wound up with those two. You know, um, perfect. I, I think it'd be I don't know it'd be kind of a fun little touch. Um, yeah. And I don't think it would. It, not every mystery needs to be explained, but this mi- mystery it would be kind of fun to explain. It won't ruin anything per se. But mm-hmm. anyway, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about this idea. No, I don't think so. I think this is uh, just perfectly wholesome. Yeah, this is a this is a great series, Emily and Jacob. Thank you so much for this um, fun, wholesome sitcom. <laughs> this might be <laughs> one of our first sitcoms actually that we've ever had pitched to us. So yeah, thank you. For yeah, that. if you um you guys ever want to shoot us some more sitcoms or whatever other genre you're thinking you can always uh check out the descriptions on uh whatever platform you're listening to this on um just to run it down for you you can reach out to us at casually critical podcast on instagram uh or at casually critical podcast on facebook uh shoot us a dm on either of those uh for your itch to pitch uh, also, if you have any questions for us, um, we haven't had some fan questions in a long time, but this Mandalorian episode actually was in response to a fan question submitted by Nathan from Virginia. So yeah. thank you, Nathan from Virginia, for submitting this question. Um, this is the power of FAQs. Um, well, not frequently asked, but fan asked questions. Um, <laughs> nice. We can get new ideas. We can uh, feed off of each other creative- creatively, the, uh, produ- the creators of this show and the audience. Um, if you can just reach out to us, you can also email us at uh, casuallycriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's a great place to end, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. I have spoken. Ah.